listening to The Currency. Welcome. Uh, I'm your host. My name is Mike Gaston. I will be your pilot today, ladies and gentlemen. Please take your seat, put your tray tables in the upright position. Make sure to secure your seat belts because we will be departing any moment now. We've been cleared for takeoff. Glad to be behind the mic. Thanks for joining me today. This is episode number 94. Uh, the date is August 22nd. It's Sunday afternoon, 2022. And I am thrilled, as I am want to say, to be here behind the mic talking with you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking time. Really excited today. This is uh, got an interesting topic for you. I've been traveling all week, but while I was on the road, I came across an article that I should say actually a scholarly paper that was published in an academic journal, the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. This paper showed up uh, a little earlier in the year. It was written by three uh, academics submitted late last year, went through the peer review process, as is typical for a journal like this, and the article was approved. The title of the article is COVID-19 and the Political Economy of Mass Hysteria. COVID-19 and the Political Economy of Mass Hysteria. When that t- I saw that title and like, you had me at hello. I mean, this was just a fa- fascinating title. I spent some time this week reading through it. it was, it's it's not a dense article. It took a little bit of work. I, it, it's really accessible, though. Anybody that's interested, I will publish a link, provide a link to this article. You can download the PDF, read it for yourself. It's it's free. Uh, if you want to get that in the show notes, just go to my website. It's mikegaston.com forward slash the currency zero nine four. Mikegaston.com forward slash the currency zero nine four. You can download the article there. I'll make sure to provide a link. COVID-19, the political economy of mass hysteria. And the article tries to tackle uh, the, the issues around the, the, the typical welfare state, which is the most common kind of government form that we see. The USA, Great Britain, Germany, et cetera, all welfare states. We'll talk about that in a second. And it's possible link to mass hysteria. And they, they draw like six points, I'd say six and a half points that address this kind of connection, this potential connection between mass hysteria and the welfare state. The authors, as I mentioned, three academics, two of them hail from Madrid, Spain. The other is from Chile. I believe Chile, I could be wrong. Maybe Argentina, but I think it's Chile. Other names, uh, Philip Bagus, uh, Jose Antonio Peña Ramos, and then last, Antonio Sanchez Bayon. And gentlemen, if you're listening to this, and I'm sure you are, because who doesn't listen to this podcast? Only the smartest, refined, intellectual, and potent people in the world listen to the currency. If you're listening, I do apologize if I butchered your name just a little. This Yankee, he's doing the best he can. But I'm just one man against the world. So forgive me if I didn't say your surname correctly. But you've done a great job. If you're listening, really grateful for this work that you put out there. So here's the thing. They, uh, they ask a bunch of questions and I, and, and, you know, you could say, well, they're just questions, but I really believe they're, they're making an argument and, uh, and maybe they don't agree, but they ask a bunch of questions, but they, they want to know, like, how can a political system influence the likelihood and spread of mass hysteria in a digitized and globalized world? And the specific thing that they try to get at is like, what is the role of the modern welfare state in mass hysteria? That's the purpose of the whole paper is to, is to ask these questions and try to answer them. What is the role of the modern welfare state in mass hysteria? Now, here's the thing about uh, the welfare state. You hear that phrase and you think, well, 
uh, that that must be a state that like hands out checks. It must be a state with UBI. Welfare state is just a phrase, a, a term to define the ca- kind of government. And you, you'll see countries like America, as I said, Great Britain, Germany, France, Spain, uh, a lot, you know, Canada. These are what you would call modern welfare states. Now, they have varying degrees of, of um, implementation, whereas maybe America is a little bit behind Europe in some of its implementation of the welfare state. But the welfare state tends to be a larger government that is saying, look, we're taking on the responsibility for the, for the well-being of our people. There's no aspect of the human experience that we don't want to address. We want to eliminate all poverty. We want to eliminate all sickness. We want to provide education. So we want to eliminate any type of ignorance or, or, or illiteracy. We, we want to provide for the whole human. And so welfare states typically will provide things like, you know, subsistence, like welfare assistance, financial assistance, uh, nutrition, you know, supplements. They'll provide education. They'll provide health care. They'll make sure that there's free and equal access. They'll fight to make sure that everybody has access to good jobs and that they can all enjoy the same entertainment and consumption and so on. But the welfare state takes on for itself, either by the behest of the population or just assumes this responsibility for the well-being of its population. Now, you might say, well, yeah, that's, that's a government. That's what a government should do. If, if you assume that, though, you, you may be guilty you may be guilty of, of not understanding that that's not the only way you can structure a government. And historically, and even now today, we have more minimal governments. A minimal government, as opposed to a welfare state, would say something to the effect of, it's only our job to protect inalienable rights, or it's only our job to protect property rights, let's say. We're not supposed to get involved in your happiness. It's not our job to make sure that you're healthy. It's not our job to make sure you're wealthy. It's not our job to make sure that you're wise, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Our job is just to protect your property rights. Your job is to find your own happiness. You want to go get an education? That's up to you. You want to be unhealthy? You want to sit and smoke yourself into the grave? Hey, that's on you. That's not our, that's not our, we don't think that's great, but that's not up to us. That's not our purview. Uh, You want to kind of lay around and, and then not have any money, you know, you don't want to store for the future, you don't want to save, et cetera. That's your decision. On the other hand, if you want to develop great wealth, that's also your decision. Like it's not our job to decide what it is that you will do, think, believe, what happiness you'll pursue, what your experience will be. Our job is to protect your rights. So your property rights starts with your own body. Your body is yours. It's not ours. It's yours. And we'll protect that right. We'll fight to make sure that you have autonomy over yourself. Uh, maybe you own some land, maybe you bought a car, maybe you have an iPhone, whatever those things are, those are yours. That's your property. And we'll defend that right. Now that could mean also that we stand an army because we'll defend your property rights against hostile nations. We'll have a police force that's going to defend your property rights, uh, maybe against a neighbor that's not respectful and so on. So this isn't like um, some kind of theoretical thing where the state is so tiny, it has no role in modern life. It's more of a philosophical uh, st- position on government, that government's job is to get out of the way and let you live life as you see fit. Government's there, but it can't transgress that role. It's not its job to make sure that you're healthy and happy. It's its job to get out of your way and to protect your rights. That's all. And so what we do uh, these days is we kind of assume, we've kind of shifted gears that the government's job is to make my life good. And if my life isn't good, I got to point a finger. I can't look in the mirror. It's got to be somebody else's fault. And typically we're looking to the government 
to fix that. That's why we want healthcare. That's why we want great jobs. That's why we want UBI. That's why we want wonderful leisure. That's why we want, you know, fill in all the blanks, mass transportation, education, and all that jazz. And so the welfare state has this kind of implicit agreement, if you will, contract with its citizens that we will care for you and we'll make sure that you have a good life. One of the problems with that is, and I don't want to get too much into critiquing the welfare state. I want to get to this article, but I want to make sure we're understanding the terms here. One of the problems with that is what you define as good might not be the same as what I define as good. And so I might say part of a good life for me is is a bit of asceticism and maybe even a little bit of poverty, but really deeply going after my faith. And I might want to raise my family within that light. And society might say, well, hold on a second. It's not good for you to be um, you know, low income or poor. It's not good for you guys to be in church all the time. Now, I'm not arguing for that. I don't go to church all the time. But you, you know, someone might say, I think that's better to pursue God first and financial stuff. I don't like, I think that's immoral. You shouldn't chase that. I don't think that, I think that's a false dichotomy. I don't think you have to uh, eschew wealth building uh, to be able to follow God. But someone could say that. And society could say, we don't agree with that. We think that you have to pursue material gain. Uh, and if you don't, we're going to take your kids from you or, you know, all that kind of stuff. So the problem you run into with a welfare state is you don't necessarily have agreement across the board as to what a good life is. What is moral? What is good? What is true? What is right? And I think we struggle with that, especially in the U.S., because we're living in a very postmodern world where we can't agree even what the truth is. We can't even agree what really happened. Your truth is not my truth. And heaven forbid you try to impose your truth on my truth because, oh, my gosh, that's like the cardinal sin these days. So the modern welfare state tries to ensure the well-being of its people, its citizens of that society. Now, the other thing we have to address here besides just the welfare state, well, it's the elephant in the room. <laughs> we have to address the topic of mass hysteria. Now, you kids know where Uncle Mike's coming from. But if you look out across the plain of America and see the broken bodies, the destroyed businesses, the cities burned to the ground, exaggerating, of course, you have to ask the question, you know, has our society descended into a type of mass hysteria? Now, joking aside, mass hysteria is a real thing. We have historical examples of societal level mass hysteria. Think of the witch hunts of the 1600s. There was such irrational terror and fear that people went around hunting for witches to the degree where there were certain European villages where there were no women left. People were so gripped by fear and terror that there were no women left in certain villages. And we saw some of that in the U.S. as well. But the witch hunts, the Salem witch hunts, the European witch hunts were driven by a mass hysteria. That's not the only example, by the way. And you might say, well, yeah, they were, we're so far evolved. We're so much, we got technology. We're so smart. We're educated. They're a bunch of unwashed uneducated, illiterate idiots. I'm sorry, folks. If you, well, first of all, here's the thing. If you believe in evolution, then evolution tells you that human beings and other organisms take thousands, if not millions of years to slowly change. You know, we're being told, oh, it took billions of years, you know, billions, Carl Sagan with his billions and billions of years. 
like, you know, all this, you know, you went from a planet of just goo and eventually now we have modern society and it took billions of years to get there. So you can't tell me that a few hundred years ago, we, we've evolved as an organism in just a few hundred years where we aren't susceptible to the psychological, biological uh, impulses that drive mass hysteria. We're not, I mean, even if, and I don't believe in it, but even if you believe in evolution, you can't make the scientific argument that we've evolved past that. Now you could say, well, we're better informed and we have a better understanding of the world around us. We're not superstitious anymore. You know, that was witches and they were scared of, you know, boogeymen and being cast, uh, spells being cast and demons and devils and so on. Okay, fair enough. But we have our own boogeymen that we're fearful of and we've traded in some things that they were not fearful of that we're now fearful of. Let me give you an example. So you can say, well, they were fearful of evil spirits. They were fearful of witches and the devil because everything was so religious. Well, one of the benefits of religion that no one wants to talk about is religion provides an understanding, a context for life after death. In the religious understanding and view of the world, you're eternal. You're, you're, you have a soul, a spirit. You pass through that the physical world is just one dimension of life. And we get so wound up, oh, we know science and science, you know, you can't prove that there's no life after death. That's ridiculous. Science, you know, you, it, it's all about the material world. And once you die, you're dead. And see, that's, that's the problem. When you are measuring only the material world, you're left with a worldview and an understanding of death that's different. There is no life after death in the material, scientific, modern world. Most people today, even if they have some religious baggage, tend to be more materialistic and they tend to be more, quote unquote, scientific, meaning they think that there's no life after death. There's no transcendent. There's no, there's nothing sublime. It's just, it's just this life. The problem with that is for the individual that believes in just the material world, this world here and now, what are you going to do about death? Because death means annihilation. When you die, you're done. You're over. You're being, you're, you're, your essence, your spirit, it's not there, it's gone. And the folks in the 1600s, yeah, they may have gotten terrified over uh, evil spirits and witches, but they had a framework for what happens after death. They weren't as fearful of dying back in those days because death was a passing through to something else. Now, I'm not here to argue with you if they were right or wrong. As most of my listeners know, I'm a Christian. I have a worldview and an understanding of life and the human experience and of the transcendent that tells me there is life after death and that that doorway to that, that life after death is Christ. That's my, that's me. That's what I understand to be true, but I'm not here trying to get you to agree with that. I'm just saying any of us intellectually, if you look at them versus us, us, they had a framework to deal with death. And because they had a framework that made death palatable and actually made death a good thing because you were passing through to potentially something better, that they didn't have to be fearful of it. We, on the other hand, death is annihilation in the modern world. We have no framework to deal with it. We have no way to look at death and say, but it's okay. If you die, you're just passing through. And if you've lived your life in, uh, in a certain way, meaning submitted to God or, you know, pick the, you know, the, if you're Jewish, uh, according to the Jewish laws, or I don't, I don't know all the rules of Islam, but the point being, if you do these things, you'll pass through to something better. We don't have that today. Yes, there are people like myself that have a faith that gives us a doorway through and an understanding and a peace to deal with existential issues 
they had that. We don't have that. And so all I'm trying to say is, yes, they had things that they were terrified of that we are not now. We have things that we are terrified of, specifically death, that they necessar- they were not necessarily terrified of because they had ways to deal with it. So let's not be too arrogant about modernism. Let's not be too haughty about who we are. We're only a few hundred years removed from the 1600s and we have not evolutionarily progressed forward as an organism. In fact, we're dealing with, we're, we're medicating for depressions and anxieties and things that they weren't medicating for. We live longer. We have healthier lives. Like I'm not saying they had it better. They had mean, ugly, brutish, short lives. I think we've got it a lot better. I love my air conditioning. I love, I love running water and indoor toilets. I like a, a shower every day. I like my, you know, food, et cetera. I mean, we, we have it so phenomenally well. But let's not kid ourselves to, to pretend that they're somehow so different than us. They were human beings, very similar to us, just in a different context than you and I. And they had some things that they could lean on that were good. So you have mass hysteria. Mass hysteria is this idea that you have a society gripped by terror, by fear. And what happens is uh, you have these, these anxieties, these stresses, these fears that build up to a point where there is a psychotic break amongst a group of people. And that can spread. It can be a contagion. There's research that shows that that's the case. And um, the authors of this article cite some of the work that's been done on mass hysteria. There's been a lot of work done on mass hysteria. There isn't a lot of work on the political economy of mass hysteria. So they're trying to fill a bit of uh, a gap in the in the intellectual, academic, rather, literature. So... <sighs> There are six reasons why they believe that mass hysteria can be exacerbated or even amplified by a welfare state. You get these situations where people are fearful, uh, anxiety, stress, it builds up, builds up. It does not get addressed. Sometimes it's amplified and it, it can turn into mass hysteria. Examples that they provide, plus I talked about the Salem witch hunts. We have real examples within organizations, within small groups of people and across a continent in Europe where mass hysteria took hold and horrible things happen, horrible things happen uh, because of fear. And, you know, if you have any issue, I mean, you should know, I think we all know fear. We're all taught, you know, like if someone's drowning in a body of water, you don't jump in to help them because in their terror and in their fear, they won't go, oh, goodness, thank you. Help me. Just pull me to shore. I'd be so grateful. No, they're so terrified that as they're drowning, they grab you and they pull you under with them. They're just, they're just, they're not thinking. They're just terrified. And so that happens with mass hysteria as well. You get a society that's not thinking and things happen that, um, that are really ugly. Let's talk about the th- six things that they uh, identify that lead to an exacerbation of mass hysteria that are unique to the welfare state. The first thing is that a welfare state being a large state and being a state that oversees most aspects, if not every aspect of the human experience, those kinds of states have the power to control the activities which can reduce things like stress and anxiety, things that that you need to engage in to dissipate the animal spirits, the energies that lead to mass hysteria. So if mass hysteria is the culmination of fears that that drive things like anxieties and stress and those anxieties and stress don't get dealt with and they build and build and build 
and then you get a society that kind of has this snap or people start freaking out and that becomes contagious because once you see, you know, here's an example of it, just to make this real. Remember the beginning of the pandemic? Oh my gosh, there's this thing coming. And, and you know, I think all of us were taking it kind of different. Some were worried right away, some were not. As soon as you saw people grabbing toilet paper by the pallet load, they're just loading up the toilet paper. Ask yourself, did you get a little nervous? I think a lot of people felt a little bit of like, oh, shoot, this is real. Like, it, and it, it drives this kind of mass hysteria. Like, everybody's got to get the toilet paper. Became, you know, we all joke about it. It becomes silly, but, but people are susceptible to this. You see someone grabbing that toilet paper and you start to go, oh, shoot. You know, there's a better joke there. I'm just not going to say it. Oh, shoot. Want to keep that non-explicit tag for uh, for the kids. That's mass hysteria. And so what the st- uh, this, uh, welfare state has coercive power. I mean, as of uh, today, even yesterday and today, today as I'm recording, I mean, there are people in the streets rioting against Australia. Here we are almost two years in, you know, a year and a half easy. And Australia is locking down its people again and again and again, different states in Australia. And people are having enough of it. I mean, there are thousands in the streets right now rioting. And there are battles between police, the police forces and just the average people saying enough is enough. And why is that? This isn't mass hysteria. These are people that have just had enough. Why? They're stressed. They have anxiety. And, the, and what Australia is doing is we go, oh my gosh, there are four or five cases. They've got a zero COVID policy. We've got a handful of cases. We're going to lock down the state. And they just keep locking them down, locking them down, locking them down. And this is, this is the only way they seem to know how to deal with this issue. We've all been through, all of us have been through lockdowns on some level, but the, but the, but the welfare state has the power to do that. A minimal state does not have the power to lock down the people. They don't have the authority over your life. They don't have the authority over your behaviors. They can only protect your property rights. And so the minimal state says, Hey, look, there's a disease coming. Use your head folks. And I think if you look at Sweden, they've kind of taken this approach, like use your head don't, you know, don't lick doorknobs. Don't, don't uh, spit in people's faces, but try to stay healthy. Here are the things you can do to stay healthy, you know, physically exercise, do all these things, try to avoid, et cetera. And, and we'll let you make decisions that are good for you and your family. The welfare state says, hold on a second. No, you can't do that. We are not going to let you outside. We're not going to let you socialize. You can't, we're shutting down concerts, sporting events, no religious ceremonies, nothing. Boom. You can't even bury your own dead. We locked down that hard. The effect that that has is that people start to get even more and more stressed because getting together, going for a run, playing a game of soccer with some friends, hanging out at the pub and having a beer, going to a movie, going to a concert, these are the things that actually help de-stress us. It's how we blow off steam. You've got anxiety and you get together with a bunch of friends and afterwards you're like, you know what, I, life's not that bad. I've got some great friends. You know, Tom had a great idea. Steve was really encouraging. I feel better. I've got a better perspective. When you're locked in your house, you can't go for a run. You can't hang out with your friends. You can't have folks over to the house for dinner. Like you can't celebrate holidays that are ancient, things like Easter or Christmas or whatever. All these things that we do as human beings that help us stay connected, to feel rooted, to have a better perspective on the world around us that often provides stress relief and anxiety reduction. When those are taken away by the welfare state, what happens? Well, those things amplify. I suspect that what we saw with the Black Lives Matter explosion after the the death of uh, George Floyd, a lot of that was due to the fact that people had been locked down for so long that their stress levels, their anxiety levels, their frustrations, their anger, they were isolated. They, they, had, they just didn't 
couldn't see the world in a way that was positive or healthy. As soon as that thing happened and it was televised across the country, and if not the world, people blew up. It was a stress relief. They had to blow off steam. So what'd they do? (laughs) Well, you know, watch the news. I mean, uh, some cities burned. People got hurt. Some people got murdered. Businesses got destroyed. And uh, it was rough. So the welfare state in its in its desire to, you know, fix the problem has the coercive power to lock people down. And that creates a kind of feedback loop, if you will, of anxiety and stress because people can't blow off stress. Now, here's the second thing that's kind of tied to this. The welfare state also tends to deal with threats in a centralized and monopolistic way. What I mean by that is the welfare state is big. It's, it's not kind of a free market of ideas. It's not like a bunch of different agencies or groups or institutions coming up with ideas. It's a monolith. The welfare state is big and it's centralized. And it says, look, here's how we're going to deal with it. We're going to deal with it in a very centralized way. So what ends up happening is everybody in the welfare state has to toe the line. So rather than saying, hey, look, um, we suggest you stay home, but we've got a bunch of different folks working on this problem you know, where there are different ways that we can do this. We're exploring things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, or however you say it. We're exploring vaccines. We're exploring even things like nutrition. We're exploring, you know, we've got all these different groups. There's free market of ideas. All kinds of people are researching. And we're looking for the most creative, uh, the the most, um, you know, inventive, the most elegant and the best solutions. The welfare state just comes out, boom, and lowers, lowers the boom. It drops... The, the the bomb. It's like, we're locking down, we're shutting down businesses. We'll let you know which businesses are essential. We'll let you know which ones aren't. We're going to tell you when you can do this, when you can't do that. We're shutting down schools. We're, we're, just, we're just deciding from a central location and we're going to monopolize the decision-making process. We're going to monopolize the way that we address this. So right now we're sitting here in 2021 and the only solution that we can hear from the American government is that you have to get vaccinated. There's, there's, no, there's no willingness to talk about therapeutics, things like remdesivir. There's no willingness to look at things that have shown phenomenal results. And not just for this, but since the 70s, people have using, been using ivermectin for uh, biological and virological vir- 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 sicknesses. I mean, we've cured river blindness in, in developing nations with ivermectin. We've been using it for parasites. It has all these phenomenal uh, qualities to it, hydroxychloroquine. I mean, and the funny thing about it is that the the welfare state is so invested in its approach to solving the problems that it will actually destroy, undermine, it's hostile to any competing way of, of solving it. That's the monopoly piece. It, it doesn't want, it's like, here's the centralized solution. Everyone has to do it. If you don't do it, you're destroying the well-being of the country. I've had COVID. I, I'm flush with antibodies. It, healthier, uh, more more protective against variants, et cetera. I don't need, I don't need a shot. I don't need a vax. I don't need boosters. I don't need follow ups. I, I anybody that's had the 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 sickness and survived, you're actually in really good shape. And yet the welfare state can't. It can't accept alternatives. It can't accept a multitude of options. It's not interested in. Um, 
the marketplace of ideas, it decides one way and it's that way or the highway. And so that's what we're seeing right now. You've got the welfare state insisting. And so what ends up happening? Why does that contribute to mass hysteria? Because it becomes groupthink. Because what happens is the people in the welfare state hear vaccine, 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 and they start crapping their pants if anybody doesn't get vaccinated. They get, they're terrified. It's like, oh my God, you're going to kill us if you don't do what the government tells us to do. You've got to do this thing. They're terrified. This is, again, this is this fear, this mass hysteria. So yeah, are vaccines bad? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I don't know. They're experimental. They're new. This technology never been done before. We've tried for many decades to get this technology to work. It's never worked before. Never. And it's, and it's failed with really bad results. And yet somehow miraculously we did it. Let's say we did it. Okay, great. Phenomenal. But there are so many other things. Uh, why are we not telling people just to eat properly and get some exercise? Why are we not telling people to, to get some vitamin D in their bodies and some zinc? I mean, these are very common things that work really well, really well. The data, the science is there. But the welfare state only has room for one approach. It's a centralized approach and everyone has to get on board or else. Now, one of the things that supports that, you know, because you've got this group think going and people are terrified if you don't want to do what the welfare state says, is the third thing is you get the media. The media is often politicized in a welfare state. And that runs kind of counter to what we've always believed about ourselves, at least in America. We think we've got a free press. We think the media is there to help us to understand things, to give us a view of the world that, you know, the information so that we can be educated, make good decisions, know what's going on in the world. It's like, you got to have the news, the news, the news, the news. And we always think of our press as free. We're very proud of the free press uh, tradition in the United States, the independence of the press, the government doesn't control the media. But here's the funny thing about the welfare state and the media. The media is often politicized in a welfare state, and that runs counter to what we've often been told or, th or thought. And this is where you get all this nonsense back and forth about fake news. But, but here's the thing. The media is highly regulated. That's one thing. In a welfare state, we've got the FCC. You can't just start up a news channel and throw it on television. You can only say certain things. There's certain things you can't talk about, certain images you can't show, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, well, that's fine. You could say, well, we need decency laws and so on. But but here's the area, the, the, the wealth, because the state is so large, the welfare state is so large, it's so monolithic, it's so omnipresent in every element of life. The media develops a symbiotic relationship with the welfare state. It needs the approval and the engagement of the welfare state. Think about it. When Anthony Fauci, when Dr. Fauci's making the rounds, every news show in the country wants to get Fauci on. They want to get him on. They have to because if the American people hear that Fauci's going to be on TV, they want to hear what he has to say. It's the welfare state speaking. It's the government telling me what I should do and where are things at. And they've got insight that nobody else does. I want to hear from Dr. Fauci. It's the same when you've got the president. Could you imagine uh, being a, a news journalist, a, a personality, an anchor, and scoring an interview with the president of the United States of America? Can you imagine what the ratings are going to be? You can imagine how many people will watch that interview. Whether they hate the president or love him, people are going to watch it. It's the president of the United States. I mean, so the welfare state needs access to 
the media. They need to be able to talk about what they want, but the media more so needs access to the welfare state. They don't, they don't want to piss off the government because if you take a hostile view to the government, you're, you're never going to get anybody to come on to talk from the government. You're not going to have the ratings. You're not going to get the, 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 the mass of the people to say, I want to watch this interview on you know NBC or CBS or ABC. Why? Because if you're hostile to the government, the government's not going to play ball with you. So the welfare state or sorry, the media is incentivized, not through money from the government, but they're incentivized to play ball, to not cause too much of a problem. Now you could say, well, Mike, you know, they were really hard on the Trump administration. Well, yeah, the Trump administration wasn't the welfare state, were they? I mean, his message, regardless of what he delivered, his message was he was going to dismantle the welfare state. Now that's not 100% true. But that was his message. His message was, I'm going to dismantle the administrative state. I'm going to drain the swamp. I'm anti-government. That was kind of his message. Whether you believe it or not is another story. And we can, I don't even want to argue that because I don't think that, that Trump did a great job draining any swamps. That said, he positioned himself against the government. And so what you get is this, uh, you know, sure, the media was still friends with the welfare state fighting the enemy of the welfare state, which was Donald Trump. So as soon as the welfare state kind of regained its footing, I, AKA Joe Biden, the Democrats, uh, everywhere, everyone was back in love again. So you find that the media becomes more um, in bed with the welfare state. And I can take it a step further. Forget just, you know, ABC, NBC, look at social media. I mean, the Biden administration openly talked about, not just, they didn't get caught. They were like, yeah, we're working with Facebook. We're telling them, you know, they're working with us. We're trying to make sure that the information on Facebook lines up with the facts that we're putting out there. Like they're working with the media. Social media is just one example to make sure that the information that the people are getting is in line with what the welfare state wants people to think. Facebook was checking with the Biden administration to make sure like that they took information down that countered anything that the Biden administration was trying to talk about regarding COVID-19. If that's not, if that's not a compromised, politicized media, I don't know what is. Sure, there aren't troops standing in the background with rifles as the, you know, as the presenter gives the news, reading, you know, the news script that was handed to him by the State Department. Okay, but you can't get any closer in bed. Social media was supposed to be this organic free-for-all where people connected and, you know, talked and so on. And, and they're over there checking with the government to make sure that the information people are putting up is lining up with what the welfare state, that centralized, monopolized solution set uh, with what they want. Number four related to that is expert endorsement. So what ends up happening is when you have... Uh, oh, and I should back up. When the media is in bed with the welfare state, it creates mass hysteria because the media just amplifies what the welfare state is saying. If it's all about uh, getting the vaccine, then they're going to talk about how many people are not getting the vaccine. You're going to sit listening. You're terrified. They're going to talk about how many children are in hospitals and how hospitals are not you know, keeping up with all the COVID 
They're not going to share data points. They're just going to tell you all these narratives that align with what the welfare state wants to happen, which is to get everybody vaxxed, because that's the solution that the welfare state came up with. So that creates fear. It just continues to add to fear. They're not out there doing investigative journalism. They're not trying to debunk things. They're not trying to say, hey, folks, take a deep breath. This thing is not as deadly as we thought it was. Yes, you know, it's definitely easier to catch it, but it's less lethal than we thought. They're not talking about that. Those are facts, by the way. They're not talking about that. Why? Because that doesn't line up with what the welfare state wants to have addressed. And so that creates more fear and panic. Let's talk about number four, the expert endorsement. Uh, the thing with hysteria um, is you get this anxiety. And so people, when they feel hysteria and anxiety and fear, they want to look to an expert. They want to look to somebody to assuage that fear and to say, it's going to be okay. And you can trust me. We want someone to, to care for us. And so with, with, with the welfare state, what ends up happening is because it's so big and because it's involved in every aspect of our lives, we end up looking to the state for those experts. If you had a minimal state that was not involved in all that, we'd be looking to different universities, uh, virology departments. We'd be looking at different experts in the field. But what ends up happening in, in a society like ours, we tend to look to the government. We want to hear from Dr. Fauci. We don't want to hear from Brett Weinstein, who's a molecular biologist and has a ton of experience in virology. He, he's had a whole career respected. I mean, this guy, super smart guy, really apolitical. Uh, he just wants to get good data out there and he wants people to think, you know, this is just one of these classic academics slash scientists. We don't want to hear from him. And in fact, he's a threat to the state because if he doesn't agree with what the state is saying, we want to hear from Dr. Fauci. What does Fauci say? Fauci says, well, don't wear a mask. Well, then tomorrow you should wear a mask. Now, now, now the next day you should wear two masks, double masks. Now, you know what? As soon as you get your vaccine, it's going to make everything better. You won't have to wear a mask. Let's do it. And you know what? We don't even, Fauci's saying, we don't even need everybody vaccinated. We just need a certain percentage of the population. Then we should have herd immunity. It's going to be great. Oh, no. Now you need an, another vaccine. You might need a third booster, by the way. And oh, no, now we've got a problem because we've got the variant and everybody needs to get vaccinated. And the people that are not getting vaccinated, they're going to cause a problem. And we're never going to get out of this thing. We're going to lock. I mean, it just is, it's insanity, but we're all looking to the state, the government, for our expert information. And we're looking for that, for this kind of, you know, centralized authority that's going to give us peace and well-being and, and security. And the, and the problem is we, we can't get that from them. They can't give it to us. They can't give it to us because they, they're not, we're not looking to multiple sources. You know, there's a, there's a, the verse in Proverbs, in a multitude of counsel, there is wisdom. You talk to a bunch of different people that's where you're going to get wisdom. Doesn't mean you take a poll and do whatever the poll says. It's like you talk to a handful of people and you start to hear something. You go, you know what? I'm hearing a theme. Like all these guys that have done this before me, the common theme seems to be, you know, fill in the blank. We're not doing that. We're like looking at Dr. Fauci, like he's got all the answers. And quite frankly, he's just one man and not necessarily a man that that's, uh, I don't know that we should be trusting him, quite frankly. You know, he wants to make a living. He wants to have a great name. He's not going to have an easy time admitting I was wrong. And that's what science does. Sometimes science teaches you that you were wrong. Uh, there's a lot of money at play. There's a lot of power at play. There are reputations, careers, fortunes won and lost through this thing. And we're all looking at one government guy to tell us the way forward. When really, there's a multitude of voices we could be listening to, and they don't all agree with each other. And that's actually good. That's a better state to be in, to have conflicting ideas, conflicting information, 
so that we can sit and sift through it and go, you know what? I think I'm seeing a pattern here. I think I'm seeing the truth. Number five, we're almost there, kids. A welfare state can benefit from instilling a sense of fear in its citizens. I mean, that's one of the problems. The welfare state is not incentivized to keep things uh, easy and good. And here's why. And this is not a- accusing anybody of being nefarious or evil, but here's the thing. When you and I are in a vulnerable position, we look to the state to fix it for us. And the state says, I can do it. What that does is that legitimizes the state. The state say, look, I, I need all this tax money. I need all these people on the payroll. We need all these programs. We need all this authority to get involved in these various ways because we're fixing things. We're making things better. It kind of validates them. It legitimizes them. So the more that people are fearful, the more people are looking to the state saying, oh my gosh, I need help. Oh my gosh, I'm scared. Oh my gosh, help me, save me. The more the state can say, well, I I, I can be your savior. It's, it's this kind of weird thing. Think of, uh, think of people that really get their self-worth out of being needed. Have you ever noticed people, have you ever met someone like that? It's like, they just, they, unless somebody needs them, they just, you know, if somebody needs them, they feel great. And if nobody needs them, they just, they're lost. They don't know how to have a life. And I think, you know, the state can be that way. And so the state benefits from this fear. And so sometimes we'll instill the fear. I've heard people from the government, I've heard people in the media say, we need people to be scared through this because otherwise they won't listen to us and they won't do what we say. But there's this sense that the more fearful people are, the more they turn to the government. And this fear doesn't always have to be mass hysteria, by the way. Uh, Hilaire Balak in his, in his wonderful little book from the, I think the 1930s, might be the 1940s, called The Servile State, talks about this dynamic where you have in, in, um, in, in uh, capitalist societies where a small group of people, the capitalists, own all the, the means to production, which is in, in our economy, it's money. When they've got all the money, the finance, and, and they are getting richer and richer and the people are getting you know, less and less powerful, less and less enriched, less and less materially successful, you get this kind of hostility between the two. It's like you've got the, the, all the uh, capitalists and you get all the, the labor and you, in this increasing gulf between the two. What does labor do? They eventually look to the government. They go, hey... These guys are taking advantage of us. They've got all the resources. They've got all the wealth. They, they're the ones benefiting and we're the ones struggling. And, and, and what happens? Well, the government turns on and says, well, I'd be happy to fix that for you. We will fix that for you. What ends up happening is everyone now is uh, servile. The state, the state takes over and everyone's servile. The government says, we'll, we'll take care of that. Uh, f- fascinating insight, but that's really what happens when... When we're fearful, it doesn't always have to be mass hysteria, but when we are fearful, when we feel taken advantage of, when we feel powerless, we look to where we think the power is. We look at the government, we go, you got to help me. You know, I'm not, I don't make enough money, you know, fill in all the blanks. And the government's like, I'm, we're happy to step in. But every time they step in, we lose autonomy. We lose liberty. That's not just a patriot talk. That's just a human reality. When you look to the state, to take over something for you. They don't give it back. They don't say, let me fix that and hand it back to you. They go, let me fix that. Now I need to own it. And ultimately I end up owning you because you don't have the autonomy. You become a ward of the state. Now here's the last thing. Politicians are incentivized to overshoot their responses to a threat in the welfare state. We look to the politician, we're like, oh my God, things are terrible. You get a guy like, uh, like uh, is it Dan Campbell? I think his name is Campbell in, um, in Australia 
who is over uh, Victoria and, you know, he's locking down the state like crazy. He, he's incentivized to overshoot. If the people are looking at him going, hey, Dan, I'm terrified. Can you fix this for me? He's like, sure. Because here's the thing. If Dan underacts, let's say he doesn't do much. If he says, look, it's really not my job. Uh, you guys just don't lick the doorknobs, you know, wash your hands. If you feel sick, stay home from work. But like, it's up to you. You make your decisions. It's not my job. And then this thing ravages the country. And oh my gosh, we've got thousands of people dead. Everybody's sick. He's going to be the one that hangs for it. They're going to say, you didn't do enough. Like you could have fixed this and you didn't fix it. So politicians are incentivized to overshoot their response because here's the thing. You never know how much is enough. So you're going to go all in. You're going to, you're going to go all in like Cuomo did. You're going to lock down like nuts. And then you're going to like become this almost you know, dictator. You're like, I'm in control. It's an emergency. Everything I say, everybody else shut up. If you come out of your house, we're going to beat you with batons and put you in jail. We're going to throw people in these, um, you know, these uh, COVID wards and lock them up in these COVID hotels. You just strip you of all your rights. What ends up happening is that politician never has to really own those problems. That Those, those costs that get put on society where Businesses are are lost, shut down, families, you know, impoverished and so on. It doesn't affect Dan. Dan doesn't feel that. He has to overshoot. He can go, I'm a hero. Look what I did. It would have been a lot worse if I didn't act the way I did. And, and ultimately, he runs his course as a politician when he's done. It's the next group that goes, our country's destroyed. Like, I, there's no economy. We're in all kinds of debt. The people are impoverished. We've got high suicide rates, high alcohol rates, drug abuse, and so on. Dan never is held accountable for that. He doesn't be, he's not brought up on charges. He's not put in jail. He does his thing. He overshoots. He does, you know, he's like, hey, I got to deal with this. And uh, he's not held accountable. So politicians are incentivized to overshoot. If they undershoot, everyone holds them accountable. If they overshoot, somebody else has to deal with those issues. Just people want to be kept safe and they want to feel like, you know, their, their guy or gal is like really swinging for the fences on their behalf. So there you have it. Those are the six reasons that these authors think that the welfare state uh, is more susceptible and actually promotes and amplifies mass hysteria. I'd be curious to know what you think. Get in touch with me. You can just email me, mike at mikegaston.com. You can go to my website, mikegaston.com. Leave a comment in the comment uh, in the contact form. But what's your opinion on this? Do you agree, disagree? Love to hear from you. Guys, always appreciate the feedback. A number of you will reach out to me after you listen to an episode. Tell me what you think. It means a lot to me. Hopefully you found this interesting and useful. And in the meantime, uh, you know, don't look to the welfare state for your happiness. There's a deeper, more human way to live that the government cannot provide for. And if you want to talk about that, I'm always game. Guys, I love you. Love you all. And I will catch you in the next episode.